I'm Bill Lawrence, and this is my Big Bag of Onions. They got from Maine to California, broken hearts and bars unknown. And through this night we'll share a lover On that dark radio Had a soul made me so lonely Hands pressed cold against the phone The young stars
A man's mind may be likened to a garden which may be intelligently cultivated or allowed to run wild. But whether cultivated or neglected, it must and will bring forth. If no useful seeds are out into it, then an abundance of useless weed seeds will fall therein and will continue to produce their kind. Just as a gardener cultivates its plot, keeping it free from weeds and growing the flowers and fruits which he requires, so may a man tend the garden of his mind, weeding out all the wrong, useless, and impure thoughts, and cultivating toward perfection the flowers and fruits of right, useful, and pure thoughts. By pursuing this process, a man sooner or later discovers that he is the master gardener of his soul, the director of his life. He also reveals within himself the flaws of thought and understands with ever-increasing accuracy how the thought forces and mind elements operate in the shaping of character, circumstances, and destiny. Thought and character are one, and as character can only manifest and discover itself through environment and circumstance, the outer conditions of a person's life will always be found to be harmoniously related to his inner state. This does not mean that a man's circumstances at any given time are an indication of his entire character, but that those circumstances are so intimately connected with some vital thought element within himself that for the time being, they are indispensable to his development. This has got nothing to do with onions. There is no bag, and I might not be Bill, but something's big.
I've never been to a more beautiful service. My friend Kathy said, after the memorial for my husband, how did you and Duane manage to have such a loving and close family? I was hearing this comment over and over. It was true. We were blessed with 47 years together, three children in strong marriages, and eight grandchildren. They all produced an extraordinary tribute to a man they dearly loved. What no one knew was how close our relationship came to ending in shambles one blustery winter evening. That night I realized my love for my husband no longer existed. Clink, clink, clink. I looked up from my knitting at the source of the annoying sound. My husband of 11 years sat in front of the television, drinking his chocolate milk with a spoon. I felt a familiar disgust at this habit. Duane had a practical reason for downing his drink this way. Overweight, he could easily gulp two or three glasses. Using a spoon, he only drank one. But more than the constant clinking bothered me. Duane was difficult to live with. While not criticizing me, he often sat silent, reluctant to communicate for long periods of time. He'd changed so much since the Thanksgiving weekend we'd first met.
You're listening to Big's Big to Bill's Big Bag of Onions. So what happened to Aruna? After weeks of second guessing, she accepted an offer from a family friend who was making a success of an art gallery in Soho. Taking an enormous pay cut, she settled into a job where she could talk about art all day long. She enjoyed her work, but found it moved more slowly than her work at the law firm. The slow pace left her a lot of time to consider her regrets, and she began to feel that she had made a terrible mistake in going to law school at all. Her husband was fully consumed with being a doctor, and Aruna worried that she had missed her chance to build a career as her husband was doing, one that challenged her every day, where her work could be recognized and rewarded. Several months later, she received a phone call from Chetna, asking if she would be interested in assisting with a new case as a freelance member of her team. The firm was representing a Latin American museum that was suing a deposed dictator to recover jewelry and other treasures of historical significance. At first, Aruna hesitated. Did she really want to go back to the organization that had disappointed her so badly? On reflection, though, she realized that she was not going back all the way. It was only one case. She could even reduce her hours at the gallery a little and do both. Aruna joined the team, and to her surprise, she found the work engaging. She was shocked by how much she now liked collaborating with her old colleagues from the law firm in these changed circumstances, and amazed that she enjoyed using the legal training she had recently been wishing away. With encouragement from Chetna and Rajiv, she set out to form her own boutique legal practice, specializing in matters of art and limited to cases that interested her. Now the poor guy, you got to see this guy. Oh, I don't know what I said. Oh, I don't remember. He's going like, I don't remember. I don't, oh, maybe that's what I said. Now the poor guy, you got to see this guy. Oh, I don't know what I said. Oh, I don't remember. He's going like, I don't remember. I don't, oh, maybe that's what I said.
The idea that England and America are two countries separated by a common language is variously attributed to George Bernard Shaw and Oscar Wilde. Regardless of who said it, this ubiquitous line trivializes the problem. I've known Americans who made entire careers in the Middle East on a few lines of Arabic and conducted affairs in Paris without enough French to fill an eclair. So why do Americans who arrive in England with an entire language in common have such a hard time fitting in? And why do English people who once set up homes in every far-flung outpost of their empire find America so foreign? What underlies the seemingly superficial differences between English and American English are deep and historical cultural divisions, not easily bridged. An American who moves to England is like Wiley Coyote running over a cliff into thin air. It isn't a problem until he notices something is missing, and that something is the ground under his feet. An unscientific survey has shown that it takes about six months for an average expatriate to plummet into the ravine. Eight years after moving to London from New York, I'm still having wily coyote moments. English people get a kick out of Americans cheering their children on at the playground because they would only say, good job, with reference to a child's bowel movement. Americans are similarly bemused when the English shout, well done, because to them, that's nothing but an unsophisticated way to order meat. Anda sedang mendengarkan sebuah tas besar penuh dengan onions yang punya bill.
by 1880, things have got very bad in Ireland, not least because the economy is, the agricultural economy is under pressure. And landlords, most of whom don't live in Ireland but have agents there working for them, are racking up the rents because they're getting a lower return from agricultural produce. And a lot of farmers can't afford to pay these rents because they're not doing very well as farmers because the climate's against them and the markets are against them. Uh, Ireland was still recovering from the potato famine, of course, and um, there were large parts of Ireland that it was, very, it was very difficult to make a living. One of the most, well, the most famous aristocratic agent is a man called Captain Boycott, um, from whom we get the term to boycott. Uh, and he was a land agent for a peer in um, County Mayo in the west of Ireland. And he was um, uh, determined to uh, carry out evictions of those who didn't pay their rents. And uh, the people, the, 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 the Irish Land League, which was formed to oppose this sort of policy, uh, decided to tell its members, tenant farmers, that they were to shun boycott and that local tradesmen were to shun him, that no one was to just sell him food or work on his estates or do anything of the sort. Uh, but eventually he was driven out of Ireland. And from that moment on, this is 1881-82, things get very militant in Ireland. Today with a newspaper ad that'll say If you buy it is everything will soon fall into place I look out of the window as Christ what went wrong With this beautiful, beautiful one How it was before I cannot recall But I'm sure Everything falls as it falls. President Nixon wrote a letter to Kelly that read. you more than my son, don't you forget Oh my God, is it true that a boy aged two Was shot right in the head and was dead A divine ricochet was saved for who? That's also, well, a disputed question whether emotions necessarily involve motivation. Most philosophers might agree that they typically motivate. For instance, when I'm afraid of a snake, which I 
see right in front of me. My fear of the snake might motivate me to run away in order to avoid the danger of the snake. But sometimes I just freeze <laughs> in the situation. And there are other cases, for instance, joy or admiration, where we don't know whether these emotions necessarily have motivational force. There are cases in which this is not so clear. It's not true that if we look at the a tradition of philosophy that all philosophers always said, well, leave your emotions aside, they are just disturbing factors. We have examples, Kant may be the prime example, but look at Aristotle, look at Spinoza, look at Hume. I think most philosophers have a theory of the emotions. In a way, it's characteristic of analytic philosophy that they just dismiss the emotions because it's very complicated to say what an emotion is. That's the first thing. And for instance, we had physics as the idea ideal discipline and we want it to be clear and intersubjective and things like that and the emotions they seem to be just cases which are merely subjective and which merely project things onto the world which are not really there. I think this is the reason why they were neglected since the beginning of the 20th century but and now they are really celebrating a renaissance. Sir Edmund, 
or Sir Ed, or rather just Ed, was selected by Major John Hunt, leader of the British expedition, only after two other climbers failed due to exhaustion just 315 feet from the top. Marx judged Hillary, by trade a beekeeper, to have what it took to scale the peak. And in choosing him, he not only chose the right climber, but the right man. Climbing Everest marked the end of an era, or near end, as well as the beginning of a new era. Reaching the top of the world's tallest mountain eliminated one of the last remaining physical feats left to British Empire expeditionaries. After all, from the Empire's perspective, the North and South Poles had been discovered, the Great Rivers forged and explored. What else was left? Edmund Hillary demonstrated there was much else to do. Perhaps, it was speculated, standing on the top of the mountain and seeing the world below, literally and metaphorically, changed him profoundly. The first change was that he never admitted, until his erstwhile Sherpa guide confessed to it, that he was indeed the first person on the summit. Hillary always claimed that it was a team effort. The other change was more life-changing and more profound. Hillary became a humanitarian. Through Norgay, Hillary came to know the Sherpa people, those who live at the highest altitudes of Nepal and some of whom make their living, still to this day guiding climbers up the jagged rocky peaks we call the Himalayas. His love for the Sherpa transforms his life, and he spent many summers of his life helping to erect schools, some 300 in all, airstrips and medical facilities.
girls out there living it up Doing a little earth shaking somewhere Henry sent a postcard from a better place But I can see them both sitting there laughing, breathing And I can still see that smile on Wade Henry's face There are surely many things she enjoys about traveling by motorcycle, but the one Sue Langstaff mentions to me is the way the air, the great and odorous out of doors, is shoved into her nose. It's a big, lasting, passive sniff. This is why dogs stick their heads out the car window. It's not for the feeling of the wind in their hair. When you have a nose like a dog has, or Sue Langstaff, you take in the sights by smell. Here is California's Highway 29 between Napa and St. Helena through Langstaff's nose. Cut grass, diesel from the wine train locomotive, sulfur being sprayed on grapes, garlic from Bottega Ristorante, rotting vegetation from low tide on the Napa River, toasting oak from the Demptos Cooperage, hydrogen sulfide from the Calistoga mineral baths, grilling meat and onions from Gott's Drive-In, alcohol evaporating off the open fermenters at Whitehall Lane Winery, dirt from a vineyard tiller, smoking meats at Mustard's Grill, manure, hay. Author's note, a few words on sniffing. Without it, or a Harley, you miss all but the most potent of smells going on around you. Only 5 to 10% of air inhaled while breathing normally reaches the olfactory epithelium at the roof of the nasal cavity. Olfaction researchers in need of a controlled, consistently sized sniff use an olfactometer to deliver odorant pulses.
ready to build big pack of onions. Men do not attract that which they want, but that which they are. Their whims, fancies, and ambitions are thwarted at every step, but their inmost thoughts and desires are fed with their own food, be it foul or clean. Man is manacled only by himself. Thought and action are the jailers of fate. They imprison, being base. They are also the angels of freedom. They liberate, being noble. Not what he wished and prays for does a man get, but what he justly earns. His wishes and prayers are only gratified and answered when they harmonize with his thoughts and actions. In the light of this truth, what, then, is the meaning of fighting against circumstances? It means that a man is continually revolting against an effect without, while all of the time he is nourishing and preserving its cause in his heart. That cause may take the form of conscious vice or an unconscious weakness, but whatever it is, it stubbornly retards the efforts of its possessor and thus calls aloud for remedy. Men are anxious to improve their circumstances but are unwilling to improve themselves. They therefore remain bound. The man who does not shrink from self-crucifixion can never fail to accomplish the object upon which his heart is set. This is as true of earthly as of heavenly things. Even the man whose sole object is to acquire wealth must be prepared to make great personal sacrifices before he can accomplish his object.
It's your your community and your sports show. Uh, can you just read what's written on the card, please? I'm sorry. Tony walked into our office one day where my husband, Tim, counsels disabled veterans. His brilliant smile lit up his face. He was no taller than my 14-year-old, bald, rail-thin, and in his late 40s. He was so charming. The kind of charm that I'm sure his mother couldn't resist even if he'd been bad. He had this laugh. A half-giggle that came so easily I almost laughed too. I couldn't help it. I met him only briefly, but he left an imprint on my heart that I didn't even realize was there. Later that week, Tim asked me, Do you remember Tony? Sure, I said as I sorted mail. Let me tell you a little more about him. He has HIV, is a Katrina refugee, was relocated here to Denver, and from what I can tell, he's completely alone. He's been homeless, but recently found subsidized housing. However, he's pretty sick. His apartment is basically empty and he's sleeping on the floor. He doesn't even have a bed. He doesn't even have a bed. No bed, and he's sick. The words echoed through my mind. No bed. No bed. I pictured little Tony curled up on the floor. I've heard of desperate situations like this before, like we all do. And it always grips my heart and I feel terrible. But this time it was like someone shook me and yelled, He doesn't have a bed. Look at all you have. The following live radio banter has been submitted to the Essex Public Standards Board for review and for possible unspecified impositions against the two late middle-aged Colchester men who were responsible. White, cuddly elf. Baubles for the tree with the classic Koyu Crest Incorporated so you can't forget who you support even when you're staring at your Norwegian wood. A blue and white, cuddly elf. Ooh, and there's a fair old jumper and one with an elf on it. Great for Christmas pullover day at work. And a blue and white, cuddly elf. Uh, there's a gap now. No mention of a fan-produced book on the day-by-day history of the club then? No, but there is. is a, a blue, blue and, and white, cuddly elf. If you think that that radio banter was okay, then that's okay. I'm Bill Lawrence. Join me again soon for another big bag of onions.